Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. We make these patterns for ourselves all the time. And particularly early in life, we learn patterns of how to navigate the world. The problem is that the modern day world has a lot of stimulus and input that can throw us into that survival state, that fight, flight, freeze state very easily. So if you understand that that's what's happening, that we have all these patterns and they're mostly unconscious or barely conscious, then you start to think, well, okay, what are the patterns that are serving me and what are the patterns that aren't? Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. What's holding you back? It's a simple question, but can create profound insights for you as an engineering leader. In this episode, we discuss how to recognize the unconscious patterns of human behavior that are holding us back from achieving the outcomes that we want or the goals that we have. And we're joined by Luther Kitahata, executive coach and fractional CTO and VP of engineering at his own company, Integral Response. Luther shares with us his journey from co-founding different tech companies and high-level engineering leadership at places like TiVo and LiveRamp to becoming an executive coach and earning the moniker the Obi-Wan Kenobi of Silicon Valley. We also get deep into psychology and neuroscience, mindfulness practices, and leveraging awareness of your personality type, and how to shift yourself from a comfort or high stress zone into the optimal growth zone. This conversation will help you identify some of your own blind spots and hopefully spark your own journey of leadership transformation. Enjoy our conversation with Luther Kitahata. To begin, Luther, just wanted to, to first off, welcome you to the show. It's great to have you here. How's everything going? Everything's going really well. You said you're going to your wedding tomorrow, which is fantastic. I'm going to Costa Rica tomorrow. Ah, that's so great. That's so great. Well, to get into our conversation a, a little bit, your journey as an engineering leader and operator has taken you to, to some pretty incredible places from leading engineering at places like TiVo and LiveRamp and somewhere along the line connecting with Chip Conley. His work has had a big impact on, on Jerry and I in a number of different ways. And he, I think, dubbed the moniker of Obi-Wan Kenobi of Silicon Valley for you yeah, uh, at yeah, some yeah. point. So to, to go from engineering leadership to Obi-Wan Kenobi and, and everywhere in between, can you help introduce us to your journey as an engineering leader a little bit to go from engineering leader to executive coach and to now working in a, a fractional and CTO VP of engineering capacity? What has that journey been like? Yeah, I mean, it's been amazing. It's an interesting thing because I ended up training for what I'm doing right now my whole life, but I didn't realize it. Because what happened was I ended up bringing two worlds together. So I was classically trained in computer science. I was a software engineer. I grew up in software engineering companies, going through engineering management, working my way up until I ended up running engineering for 
a lot of different companies actually. And that was something that I loved. And I both worked at medium-sized companies, but also a lot of startups. I was able to do things like help start TiVo, where we invented the DVR and things like that. So had a lot of exciting things around that. And then uh, I had this other side to me that was just more of a passion. Since I was a, a little boy, I've been really interested in the brain and neuroscience. Uh, my father happened to have been a neurosurgeon and then an anesthesiologist. And so he got me interested in that around the brain and everything. And then, so I started getting into psychology and even later like kind of consciousness. And so my whole life, I did these different things that don't necessarily have one name. I'll just call them personal development. I would do silent meditation retreats for 10 days. And, and, and then eventually I started teaching meditation at work. Or I would learn about working with our different psychological selves, different methodologies for doing that. But then what happened was about 15 years ago or so, I met this executive coach and she said, you know, you could take that passion of yours and your own executive experience. And I bet you would be a really good executive coach. And the light bulb went off and wow, that kind of makes sense. So 10 years ago, I got certified. I've been coaching ever since. About half that time, I still ran an engineering organization. Since then, I've been focusing completely on executive leadership coaching, team development and facilitation. And occasionally, I do this fractional CTO, VPE kind of role where I either help with entrepreneurship or engineering itself. That's actually what I ended up doing with LiveRamp. I wasn't actually leading engineering at LiveRamp. I was helping others lead it as a part-time CTO as we found the permanent CTO. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of thing that I got into later as I started doing more of this executive leadership coaching. And then that became more of a part-time thing. I'm really curious about the dynamic around the fractional CTO and executive coaching relationship. Just to like understand the the mentoring and the coaching relationship and what that might look like for, say, a team who's looking for that type of, of support. Can you share a little bit more about what that relationship is like? For that one in particular, for instance, I got brought in to coach a bunch of the engineering leaders coaching people in sales and finance as well and everything. So that's what I was being brought in for, but they were hiring a CTO. They knew it would take six months, nine months, a year, whatever. It takes a while. And they needed someone to fill in and, and help work with the people that were currently there. You know, the head of engineering actually was wonderful. He was an amazing guy. And they just wanted to bring in some more experience as well. I worked with him and the other leaders. And it was more of a mentoring kind of relationship. The different sort of situations that I've done have been varied. You know, sometimes it's that. Other times it's helping founders who are sort of stepping into that role for the first time to bring them up. Sometimes there just a, is a gap where they're, you know, doing some hiring. But it, I found that it was something that was interesting to people. I thought people wouldn't be interested in it at first because people want somebody in that seat that's there permanently. But then I realized there are these in-between stages where sometimes it can be helpful. And usually for me, it's done at the same time as coaching some of the leaders as well. So you mentioned a lot of deep research around neuroscience and psychology and how those worlds sort of came together. Are there any stories or examples that come to mind of those worlds colliding where your research around neuroscience and psychology really supported you through an engineering leadership challenge that you were facing in, in different phases of your journey there? Is there any story or example that would be interesting to share? I think of this, this director that I had that reported to me when I was at VP of Engineering at TiVo. One of the tools that I love to use is the Enneagram. It's a personality typing tool. A lot of people have heard of the Myers-Briggs. This is sort of uh, like that, but it goes a little bit deeper to motivation. So I use that a lot, and I learned about that and been working with it for a number of years as a passion. 
because it was something I was interested in. And he turned out to be of the nine personality types, an eight, which is sort of the challenger, the boss. And they tend to come in strong. They have big energy, a lot of impact. Sometimes they can bowl people over and they can be a little bit of a bull in a china shop, but that's not necessarily something that they're as aware of. It's just who they are. Working with engineers, many of who are more introverted, you know, he was very extroverted. He could intimidate people. One day I had this conversation with him. I talked about the Enneagram and everything. And I said, you know, because that's, that's who you are, it's something that you need to become aware of because if you are working with somebody and they're introverted and you come in with that energy or you like a good argument or you, or you want to make your point and you're making it strongly, they can really be taken aback. And in the worst case, somebody like that can almost feel like, you know, verbally attacked, even if he's not doing that or trying to do that, but verbally attacked where they kind of go into that fight, flight, freeze state. So I asked him, I said, you know, what is your goal? Is your goal to make your point? Or is your goal to have this person actually hear what you're saying and execute on something and basically leverage yourself through the organization? He said, well, obviously, this is the second. And I said, well, okay, so if that's your goal, and you know that sometimes the way you're bringing yourself is putting people in that state where they don't hear what you're saying, or they don't, they, they're not able to really process it or be a good partner with you on that. What do you think would happen? Like if you changed your approach to better match how they might hear you. So that was something we worked on for a while before I was a coach, I was just managing, you know, a VP of engineering mm -hmm. and he really shifted learning that like, okay, I told him as a higher level manager, you have to think about it's your responsibility to talk to people in a way that they can hear you. Conversations are always a two-way street. And ultimately, I think everybody should try to work on their side. But as a manager, I feel like you have a higher level responsibility to do that. That's what I was trying to communicate with him. And he got it. And he got way better. Yeah, it's really intriguing, inspiring story. Being aware of people have different personalities and the way they do things are visible, obviously to other people, but may not be visible to themselves. And as a manager, I think you helping them to identify that and, and also frame the conversation. So knowing the why and the impact and eventually lead to a transformation for someone that would otherwise staying on that lane for too long before it's it's, it's hard to uh, change. I think that's the, the best thing a manager can do, best way to help with the team. I think that just give people the, the hope that that can happen. Oh, yeah. I think that's important to say that a lot of times people think, even if they know something about themselves, they think, oh, that's just the way I am. Well, you learned who you are over your lifetime. You can learn to be someone else in different situations. And so you're right. Sometimes they can be a little nuanced, but it's not like a mystery. These things can be learned and taught. I think the same story can happen in the other way that by helping the managers understand, well, their direct, direct report uh, may seemingly offensive or are not part of a good part of the team. But in fact, they are just being themselves. And knowing that is also helpful. I've seen examples in the past that the manager doesn't like someone in the team, but turn out to be a really, really good team member as long as they get to know, oh, this is just who they are. Right. And that is that is really true too. I mean, there are certain things as you move up in management where there are requirements of, you know, being able to communicate well and things like that. But particularly for high level individual contributors, the types of things that you do as a people manager is different and not necessarily something they they want to spend as much time on. And yet they are, can be incredibly productive team members. And I've even found some people who they think, oh, I'm supposed to move up and become a manager. And so they move into the management and then they realize, wait a minute, I don't really like this. And they go back to being an individual contributor, but a very high level. And so I think there's always the choice and people just need to be aware that they can go either way. They don't have to do something one way or the other, but they also can change if they want to.
You mentioned talking to people in a way that they'll hear you. What does it look like to help somebody change their behavior and to then talk to people in a way that that they'll hear you? How does that adjustment look? Well, I mean, it depends on the situation. You know, in the situation with that director uh, that I was talking about, there are a couple things that I told him. One was, you know, just bring your energy back. People talk about energy as something that we have, and you can really think of it that way. You can think of it as, hey, am I putting my energy out? Or am I pulling my energy in? And so sometimes I talk to people about, you know, that are eights on the Enneagram, instead of just going out and being a big energy person, think of like you're, hey, you're going halfway and you're letting, giving space for the other person to come out. But then there are also some simple things. Instead of making statements, ask questions. When giving feedback, one of the things I talk about is a lot of times when we have to give difficult feedback, people go in and they're really nervous because they're thinking about, oh, they're not going to like this. You know, they're going to react badly or maybe they will. And how am I going to handle that? That gets in the way of the real authentic conversation. What I say there is like, how about if you shift who you're going in as? What if you go in with curiosity rather than, oh, I have to deliver this difficult message? What if you go in with curiosity about what's going on for that person? Why are they behaving in this way? I actually want to find out. Maybe there's some good reasons. And either way, I want to get to know the person better rather than just tell them this thing they have to do differently. And so I think there are some simple things like those that you can shift the way you approach a conversation or have a conversation. Do you have any recommendations on how to help somebody shift their state? Because what I'm thinking about is the classic Silicon Valley busy culture where people are, are working really long hours and are, have so many things, an infinite amount of things to do. And maybe the natural state isn't really one of, of curiosity. How can somebody shift in order to be in that, that place of being able to ask questions and, and from a more calm and empathetic perspective? Well, a lot of times what I do with, with people in coaching sessions is I'll have them embody that. A simple thing is just sort of grounding yourself, centering yourself. So you can sit, feel your body on the chair and your feet on the ground, take a couple of deep breaths and just feel your body and sensations rather than be in your head and thoughts. That actually is a good way just to center yourself and get yourself more grounded. And sometimes I'll just practice that with them so that they get to know that. And once they do that, I say, you know, you could do this with one or two conscious breaths right before you go into a meeting. You know, you've heard of people who uh, they're going to a presentation, they go in the bathroom and they squeeze a towel or they scream into like a, a you know, a pillow. I guess it wouldn't be in the bathroom, but you know, <laughs> they do something to, to get themselves in the right state. Well, it's the same thing, but you don't have to do such drastic things. You could just take a breath. But if you want to take the next step, you know, let's say you're going into an important meeting or presentation, you know, I say, well, take a few minutes beforehand. First of all, get in your body, take a walk, go outside, whatever it is. But then think about what part of yourself do you want to be in going into this presentation? You know, similar to giving feedback. It's like, do you want to be in the part that's anxious, afraid, not sure? Or do you want to be in the part of yourself that's confident, ready, knowing, and wanting to like explore and have fun with the audience? You can take a few moments and take a couple of deep breaths and just imagine yourself being that person and fully embodying it. It sounds a little hokey, but frankly, actors do it all the time. I don't know that much about it, but there's method acting where people really go into maybe an old experience of sadness to bring them into sadness or whatever it is. And it's not that different. You can, you can shift your state in these fairly straightforward and easy ways. 
It's so actionable to do that. And just to, to relate, a lot of folks are familiar with, with my voice because I do a lot of the voiceover for the podcast, introducing some of the different guests and stuff. And I do a similar version of that in order to get up to the microphone. And so a lot of people are like, Patrick, you have so much energy. It's because I'm, I'm sitting here and thinking about, you know, why am I so grateful today? And like really sort of living into that memory. Um, and so that energy then comes out. And Jerry knows that because I think I've walked him through some of the routines there and, and he thinks it's pretty cool too. So um, I cannot understate the impact of that. It's, it's, it's tremendous. I think too often we think that when we feel certain a certain way, that that's just the way it is. Like I'm feeling, you know, annoyed or I'm feeling upset or angry. Well, that's just, I'm just angry right now. Well, no, you can shift your state. There's actually things you can do, like take a breath, take a walk, whatever, that shifts your state. And your biology affects your, your physiology and mental state and your mental state affects the other way around too. So they affect each other and you can change one by changing the other. So great. I'd love to talk about more about some of the, the patterns of human behavior. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the, the concepts or, or unconscious habits or patterns that may be holding people back and how people can sort of play around with that and maybe, maybe make adjustments or do things differently? Basically, if you think about who we are as humans, we're pattern matching and meaning making machines. That's what we were designed to do. The main design goal was to survive. You know, I'm talking about, you know, ancient humans and things like that. But in the grand scheme of things, we're not that far from those, those humans. So we are constantly matching patterns and saying, basically, often, what's the threat? What's the thing that could get me? You know, is that orange and black thing in the, in the uh, bushes? Is that a tiger? Well, if I can match that pattern faster and get two steps ahead, I have more likely chances of surviving than if I like, well, what is that thing in the bushes? And go look and I have to figure it out. So matching a pattern and making meaning of it in particular good, bad, survival, or this could be pleasurable. Since that's who we are, we make these patterns for ourselves all the time. And particularly early in life, we learn patterns of how to navigate the world. The problem is that the modern day world has a lot of stimulus and input that can throw us into that survival state, that fight, flight, freeze state very easily because we feel like our survival's at risk because that's what we're geared to feel about, like what are the threats? But it's really just like, oh, we're maybe we're feeling rejected or, oh, maybe we feel like we made a mistake or something like that. But it's not a mistake that's going to get us killed. It's just a mistake that, you know, we have to correct or something later. It's a simple thing. So if you understand that that's what's happening, that we have all these patterns and they're mostly unconscious or barely conscious, and so then you start to think, well, okay, what are the patterns that are serving me and what are the patterns that aren't? And typically in leadership, there are patterns that served us well most of our life, but as we move up in leadership, they don't always serve as well. If we can understand what is it that I'm doing, what's the motivation, what's the pattern that's happening here that is potentially limiting me, holding me back. You know, some people talk about limiting beliefs. That's sort of another way of talking about it. But that's what I mean by the pattern matching. Absolutely. And as you were sharing that, I, I was kind of taking stock because the part that really resonates is there are certain things that serve you and then there's a certain point where they don't. And then becoming aware probably of that moment where they're no longer serving you, to me, seems like that's that's the hard part. And that if I've been operating in a, a certain way that has helped me achieve certain results or, or something like that, then 
understanding the moment where I need to make a change or an evolution seems to be the tricky part. Right. And actually, sometimes it's what people think often when we're getting into this, that's like, oh, I need to get rid of that pattern or I need to break that pattern. But most everything has its advantages and disadvantages. In certain situations, it's an advantage. In others, it's a disadvantage. So the way I like to think about it is if you have those old style um, painter's palettes with different colors on it, like Michelangelo might have used or something like that, and, and they have the different colors, there's two things you're trying to do. One is you typically have your go-to colors. Something happens, you get a stimulus, somebody you know says something you don't like, and then you react maybe angrily while you're going to your red, and you have your sort of pattern of of colors that you use, patterns of behavior. One thing you're trying to do is have more freedom and choice of which to choose. So instead of just, oh, somebody said something I don't like, I'm getting angry. It's like, well, maybe that person was not in a great place. Maybe I, I need to go to something other than anger. Maybe I need to go to understanding and compassion. I have a choice. Well, you don't even know you have a choice unless you know you have a pattern. So first you get aware of the pattern, then you, then you can practice other choices. And then the other thing you can do is you can get more colors on the palette. Sometimes we have a limited set of colors, but we actually, there are more opportunities. You know, somebody who's introverted, well, maybe they can find their voice. Oh, that's a new color. Somebody who doesn't actually get angry, maybe needs to find a little bit of anger to bring in, to, you know, bring a little of that energy and forcefulness in. And I know you were you were mentioning a, a client you were working with and helping recognize some of those patterns. I was wondering if you could maybe share a little bit of an example of like what this has looked like in terms of recognizing an unconscious pattern and then doing something to, I guess, have the freedom of choice to do something different. I'll give you a simple one. It's pretty easy to understand. So I was working with this leader who, you know, among other things, he wanted to get, have better time management. Very straightforward. Okay. There's a lot of good tools for time management and there's a lot of things that, you know, we could work on and we started working on. But one of the other things I did, you know, I mentioned the Enneagram. I had done an Enneagram uh, questionnaire with him and found out, in fact, he was another eight. He was another challenger boss. Some of the traits of, a, of an eight are they tend to like things to be in control or, or even to be in control themselves, but they tend to resist being controlled by others or other things. What we found was as he began to use his calendar better, his to-do list better and fill those up, he was unconsciously resisting it because he felt like he was getting boxed in and controlled by his calendar or his to-do list. And so there was this unconscious pattern of behavior, this unconscious resistance to being controlled that we identified through the Enneagram and we saw was coming up in this. And then we worked with that in addition to the actual higher level approaches and tools. If we hadn't done that, you know, he probably would have gotten better, but not as much. Or as often happens, he might have gotten better while we were working together. And then once we ended, he would have just gone back to his old pattern. But because we actually dealt with that underlying motivation behavior, I mean, he was much more successful. And I wouldn't be surprised if today he's still using those tools, whereas otherwise he might not be. I'm curious, how do you find out the resistance during that collaboration? Well, I think there's a lot of ways to do that. Some are tools like the Enneagram because the Enneagram does things like point to blind spots and stuff. A lot of it is my own experience and also my training as a coach and looking for those things. I like to call them impediments. Like what are the impediments to reaching our goal or reaching our, you know, whatever we're trying to work on? What's the obstacle? What's the impediment? You can look at them in a couple of different ways. One is a problem <laughs> that needs to be solved. The other way is look at it as an opportunity. It's like, oh, here's an opportunity to grow. And so 
a lot of times I'm looking at it from that point of view. So I'll come in and it's like, oh, wow, looks like you're resisting here or something like that. You, or maybe I'll just ask. A lot of times it's more of an inquiry. So what is it? I feel like there's some uh, some resistance coming up. What do you think that is? What part of you do you think that's coming up? And they hadn't really ever thought of it that way. And so then they start to shift their awareness and they start to get a little more in tune to that. So a lot of it is tools, my own experience, but a lot of it is also the person themselves looking at it in a different way with a different awareness. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Along that, that same line of identifying the resistance, is there a practice or two that you could share to help folks maybe identify a, a pattern that they're experiencing themselves that might be holding them back or, or something that they might be able to, to do about it? This is a little bit of a, um, a metaphor and a practice. One of the things I was talking with this client earlier today about is we all have our tendencies. We have our tendencies that some of them actually work really well and some of them don't and depends on the situation. But like this client I was working with earlier, his tendency is to be very detail oriented. He wants a lot of information before he moves forward or analysis and things like that. And so I, I kind of like I do with my arm this little little like scale here. Like if you're on one side, you know, where you you want a lot of details before you move forward, or the other extreme over here is, hey, I just go with my gut. I don't really care about the details. It's like I hear something and I know what to do. Those are kind of the extremes. And usually there's an optimal range in the middle that's not either one of the extremes. I talk about, you know, you need to know your tendencies, and we can figure those out pretty quickly. His tendency, for instance, is to do a lot more detail. Now, he was asking about, he may be stepping up to this larger position, which may be more of a GM-like role. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was wanting to know sort of like, okay, so how should I approach my teams? Rather than having one team, I'm going to have three teams. How do I approach the teams and, and getting them to execute on things and things like that? And we talked about some general things about going higher level altitude, the objectives to set and things like that. But in that specific case, we were saying, look, you're comfortable with a lot more detail. You know that you don't want to, at a high level, dictate how everybody does everything. You don't want to tell them how to do it. You want to give them more of the objectives and let them figure it out themselves and coach them along the way. And because he was asking like, well, how much detail or information do I give? I said, well, you know, your tendencies over here. So you're going to have to go into that uncomfortable zone over here where which is more optimal but you actually have to go beyond that to the other side where you're starting to get signals like why did you make that decision so quickly why didn't you analyze it more or whatever because if people are over here and they're looking for the optimal zone they may think they're there but they're only part way because they're used to being over here so the only way to really know if you've gotten to that optimal zone is to go past it and then back off a little bit. And so I said, you don't, you just have to run experiments with yourself and, and see and feel into that and find those places where you give the right amount of information. And that was just kind of a, a practice that he was like, ah, okay, that's, that's really interesting. It's an interesting way of thinking. There is one more thing about this, which is going into your uncomfortable place, sort of out of your comfort zone. So this is an image uh, that I came up with. It's not my own, but you know, there's sort of the idea of getting out of your comfort zone 
And then there's um, Kara DeWick from uh, Stanford. She wrote a book on mindset, growth mindset and fixed mindset that a lot of people have really loved. She's done some great work. And I kind of combined those two in this image. Um, it was something that I did for an entrepreneur course that I was uh, teaching. It turns out it comes up a lot in my coaching too. And I found like, oh, wow, this is a really great image for people to see. This is what I was showing him earlier. You know, the middle is the comfort zone and the red outside, that's the yellow. The red outside is the stress zone. And in between is that growth zone. So the stress zone, pretty easy to recognize, you know, you might be in that fear or panic or at least anxiety state, you know, you might be in that fight, flight, freeze. You don't want to go there because it's very hard to be creative and solution oriented in that. But your comfort zone also isn't the best place to be either. And this is where sort of the, the mindset comes in. If you're in your stress zone, it's pretty easy to see how you might be in a fixed mindset. How do I get out of this? How do I survive? But when you're in your comfort zone, you're also in a fixed mindset. You're kind of in that okay, this is the way I do it. This is just the way I, I know how to do it and I'm going to do it again. The growth zone and the growth mindset is in between. And by definition, it is uncomfortable because it's out of your comfort zone. So in that growth zone, you know, there's stress or tension, but it's creative tension, not like I need to survive in the red zone. The thing I talked about with him and, and with many clients is that you, you need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. You need to realize that when you're feeling uncomfortable, it's actually something's right rather than something's wrong. And if you keep going into that growth zone over and over again, you can actually expand it. That green area can expand and the red area can contract. So you increase your, your window of tolerance for being uncomfortable, but also for growth. So when you're doing these tendencies, you, you have to go into a place where you're uncomfortable to grow. And that's, that was just how I combined those two thoughts. Well, understating the the pendulum and the change really resonates with me. The I mean, most of my metaphors right now probably connect it to the wedding planning that we're doing because it's very easy to fall into the stress zone because any of the logistics around a, a big, I, mean, I think people can identify for any huge, massive project, there it's very, I think, easy to fall, fall into the growth zone of fear, panic, anxiety, if you're, you're managing a really big program, complex thing. How do you shift from the stress zone to the growth zone? Is there a practice that you found to be really effective? I'm also selfishly asking because of, you know, going into a high stress period for the for the wedding, I imagine it's very directly transferable, especially even if somebody is listening and is like, oh, I want to apply this to my team and the crazy stuff going on for us. So this is where some of the neuroscience comes back in, right? What happens actually when we go into that high stress zone, sometimes they call it the amygdala hijack. Your amygdala in your brain, which is more of the lizard brain, survival brain, takes over and different hormones come out like cortisol and things like that. And it basically hijacks your prefrontal cortex, which is your thinking and reasoning brain to get you to act or freeze, you know, and sort of dampens the reasoning part of your brain. Once that's happened, it takes a certain amount of time before those hormones die down and get reabsorbed and all that kind of stuff. So it's going to be a few minutes if you really get activated before that happens. So one of the first things is just take a break, take a walk, do whatever you need to just go and allow yourself to be in a calmer state, but allow those, those hormones and things to calm down. In that sense, there's just time. But also what I was just talking about before, deep breaths, deep conscious breaths. You know, it actually activates your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the opposite. It kind of calms your brain and gets you back into that reasoning state. So doing that, meditation, it's a great way to do it. So there definitely are things that you can do to bring yourself back. But, you know, sometimes it's just like, you just have to say to someone, give me a few minutes, I need to take a walk. This is just, I can't 
continue this conversation right now because you're literally not in the state of mind that you can continue. I'm just thinking about different ways um, that people can make use of this idea and also this diagram in particular and mapping them where they are onto one of the, the circles. What I find useful in the past is just a practice of and that awareness, figure out where you are and that, that layer of awareness is really helpful. This is uh, one of the best conversations I've had on this uh, our show. This is really, really important. Well, great. I'm, I'm happy to come back anytime. So. We, we probably have only got to about a third of, of the topics we wanted to cover. <laughs> so I wanted to see if there was maybe one more we could get into to, to wrap all of this up. I was thinking of maybe summarizing everything around like the concept of being a transformative leader um, or a transformational leader and, and kind of tying that together with like a lot of these practices, help people uh, do that. But you are the expert on the, the practices <laughs> and the distinctions here. So I, I'm totally up to your guidance. Well, I don't, I don't know about the expert. I feel like I'm always learning myself. In fact, I think part of a good manager leader is that you are always learning. And my learning journey is lifelong. I don't ever think I feel like I have all the answers. And, and I certainly find myself being corrected over and over again and learning more as I go along. So thank you for the compliment. So transformative leadership. First of all, there's a couple things. Every company needs transformative leadership. It doesn't matter if it's a startup, which is pretty obvious, or a big company, because big companies need to reinvent themselves to survive. And everything in between is transformative because as you're growing, and particularly in a startup, the early stages, there's a lot of change that's happening in the early stages. As you're a bigger company, there's less change you know, that's happening. When you go from five to 10 to 20 people, a lot of change happens. When you add another 10 people after you're 100 or 1,000 people, it's not a lot of change. But transformation is something that every company needs and every leader needs. So how do you do that? Well, I mean, the way I look at it is transformation starts with ourselves. If you can't open up and learn and transform yourself, you're not going to be able to transform other people or your organization. Doing the work yourself is the most important thing. It's kind of like put your mask on before somebody else on the plane. Unless you take care of yourself, unless you do what you need for yourself, you're not going to be conscious or alive to help the other people on the plane. Now, that's obviously an extreme example. But the point is that you need to look at yourself as, I need to be able to transform myself to transform others. And what does that take? Well, first, it takes an open mindset and uh, a growth mindset and a, and a learning mindset. You know, like, hey, I don't know everything and I, and I want to learn and, and grow. So awareness, it's really awareness. The second thing is, it takes trying different things, getting out of your comfort zone and being willing to, to do that over and over again. So practices. And then the third thing is then fully embodying that and getting something that lasts, you know, so that it does actually become one of those habits and patterns that is almost unconscious, but in a good way. You know, it's something that you've developed yourself that really is helpful. And it's the same thing for organizations. So you need to think about like, how do you change the patterns and habits of the organization? You know, keep the ones that work, change the ones that don't, except the ones you can't change sometimes. But that's really the way I think of it. And I don't think of it as a, as a thing that it's like, okay, now we need to do transformation. I think of it as it's an ongoing thing. Transformation isn't just another way of saying change. Change has to go on all the time as a leader, as an organization, as a company. And so it's how do you keep that change happening productively? How do you transform things in a great way? And hopefully transformation is talking about even bigger and better changes. 
the takeaway that I, that is resonating with me is the more you focus on your own growth and, and personal transformation and your ability to recognize your own patterns and your ability to, to change those patterns as it serves to, to better serve you, the more you'll be able to help support other people recognize their patterns and adjust them to, to better serve them and better serve the organization. I think that's great. Are you ready to transition to, we have some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready to transition <laughs> to some rapid fire? Sure. Why not? <laughs> All right. What are you reading or listening to right now? This is going to sound a little self-serving. I'm listening to Arthur Brooks' new book, Strength to Strength. It actually talks about my path because there's a early strength kind of that he talks about in your early part of your career and a later strength. Basically, in the early part, problem-solving, dynamic kind of uh, strengths go on. The later part, it's more of a something he calls crystallized, which is more about pattern matching and wisdom and experience. The early part he calls fluid intelligence, and the later part he calls crystallized intelligence. But I actually made the shift from the early part where I was more of an engineer and an engineering leader to the later part where I'm an executive leadership coach. And those are kind of like two, I'm, I'm playing to my strengths in my, the period of life I'm in. The reason it's sort of self-serving is because he actually mentioned me in the book in that capacity. Uh, so I'm listening to it and it is a great book. He's a wonderful writer. That definitely sounds like a great one to check out, especially in on the topic of our pattern matching conversations and how those patterns change and you can kind of maximize the, the strengths and the state of things as they evolve. So that's great. The next question, what tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? So back to the sort of um, time management thing, it could be any tool, really. I, I happen to use Trello because it's easy, it's free for one person, you know, it's it's like visual, you can move the boxes around. It's just a great tool for organizing a to-do list and, you know, having your sort of to-do list and maybe your today list that's short and then your done list. It's almost like a Kanban board that I've designed. In fact, it's sort of based off an article I read about how Mark Andreessen does his to-do list. He, I think, originally did it on little note cards or something like that, and somebody put it into Trello, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. But I've used it with a lot of clients, and they find it really, really helpful in how they manage it. The quick follow-up question with how you integrate Trello with your clients, is it diving into like topics, sort of like case studies or challenges, or like how, do, how does it interface with your clients? Like, is it more of a, of a to-do list, like in, in helping them understand how to leverage that as a tool, or is it um, how you're working together? No, it's not working together. It's more for them. And it's really just a tool to have a different approach. A lot of times when people have their to-do lists, they naturally put them into three buckets, probably one, probably two, three, probably three, the must do's, the really want to do's and the nice to have's, right? But if you're a busy person, as most people are, what usually happens is you don't even have enough time to do the must do's. And so it really doesn't help to put them in the three buckets because you never even get to the second or third bucket. So what's the point? So what I like to do is teach them about stack ranking. Keep your to-do list in a stack ranked order, which means like the highest priority one is number one, the second highest is number two, the third highest is number three, and stack ranking all the way down. And of course, when you get further down the list, it's less important that they're in exact order. It's mostly important at the top of the list. But that way, you know, we all have limited time. We all get interrupts. Even though you don't get to everything, at least you know you're getting to the most important things, however far down the list you get. And so that's one of the concepts that you can do really easily in many tools, including Trello. And you can you can change it. It's like, oh, wait, that one's a little bit higher priority than the other one now, or this one is less priority, or this one that wasn't a priority that's way down here, I should move up close to the top now. So that's really easy. The other thing is to do and today so, you know, at the end of the day, while you're still in context, pick one thing at first, maybe it's two or three later on that, you know, you need to get done tomorrow and put it in your 
today list. So when you come in tomorrow and it's today, that's the one thing you know you have to, if you don't do anything else, that's the one thing you needed to get done or two or three. And it's just a way of like getting rid of the clutter. And then if you do get those two things done, let's say you just go to the top of your to-do list because you know that's the most important next thing, right? You don't have to really think about it. And then just moving it to done. And, and, and it's just a visual thing that is very satisfying to the human mind. And, and I also do it, you know, done today to do. It's, there's something about that order. Since we normally go left to right, having the left part most empty and moving over. I don't, I don't know why, actually. I haven't studied that, but it seems to work better. You're a total composer of mastering your day, uh, just in describing like the visual elements and like reducing the cognitive load, creating the momentum of having something move forward for the next day. Um, I I love it. Thank you. And a lot of these, like, frankly, again, they're not all, in fact, most of them aren't my ideas. I'm a composer and I'm a stealer, you know, of the best ideas from from different sources. That's great. Or borrower. I'll say borrower. What is a trend that you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? I actually think this one has hit the mainstream, but it's so important and it hasn't been in the mainstream long enough. And also the solutions haven't been in the mainstream, which is how do we develop technology? There are plenty of people who have gone way beyond me in this thinking. Uh, I just saw few months ago, Tristan Harris speak on this, for instance, I thought of it as ethical software development. It's both ethical and it's, and it's thinking about the impact we're having down in the future. As a software developer, I didn't even realize the power I had for affecting so many people. And if you look at some of the, particularly the social media platforms and things like that, I think a lot of the software developers developing some of them didn't understand the power they had completely, or in particular, the negative impacts that could happen down the road, the bad ways in which the technology could be used. It's, there's a lot of this being talked about right now, but I think there's gotta be something where, where we are teaching individual engineers in school or wherever about ethical software development. And, and that's sort of a broad, I'm using that as a broad term, but software development that takes into account not only what you're trying to do as your design goal, but des- having another design goal of, of making sure that it isn't misused or what the negative impacts could be in the future and really thinking that through and taking that into account and not just thinking about it, but designing to protect against it. Because otherwise, we're just going to continue to get, you know, as, you know, better algorithms come along, but AI and machine learning, all of these things, they're wonderful tools to, to get things done. But if we don't manage the way we develop them, they will be more and more misused as well. And the more powerful they become, the more dangerous that becomes. I'm excited for that sort of competency to be built out in different organizations, because I think that'll have pretty extensive impact in everything that we do. That's great. So as we get down to the end of our our rapid fire questions, a lot of different leaders are looking to bring in more intentionality and meaning to how they bring together and gather their teams. And so some some people operating fully remote, some people operating hybrid, fully in person, like, and there's all of the different variations in between. And so we'd love to learn what's been one of the most meaningful in-person experiences, either with your team or with the company or otherwise, all with the hopes of like providing some examples for people as they bring together their folks in more meaningfully in person, some examples to, to work with. So what's been one of the most meaningful in-person experiences? There have been a num- number, and it depends on if you talk about pre-COVID or post-COVID. Actually, let's talk about post-COVID first, because I think there have been so many people that have been working remotely, and so many of my clients have teams that they've never met, you know, because they've been hired since the pandemic. 
you know, or never met other than over Zoom or, or video of some sort, right? So some of the simple things is just making the effort to get in person. It's amazing how people have described their first in-person meetings. One of the ones that, that my client said is she had never met her boss in person. And before they met, there was a little bit of tension or something like that. And after they met in person, they spent a day together. They were like best friends. And it was like, oh, I wish I had met my boss earlier because we actually really get along well, but it was hard over video. I've had a lot of tales like that people have been telling me about just how meaningful it's been for them to have in-person meetings and things like that. So as much as it's become easier to do things remotely, it's really important to do these in-person experiences. And they can be, you know, bring everybody together from all over the world, which a lot of my clients have done, or they could be simple things like going for a hike with the local people and things like that. It can be simple or it can be big, but the effort is what matters most. Actually, I'll give you one more, which was a leadership workshop I did for an executive team recently, and they had never met. We were going into, actually, we were using the Enneagram to do a little bit of team development and going a little deeper. And afterwards, they were like, wow, this was so, so amazing and so valuable just to get together and then spend some time getting to know each other in a deeper way and figuring out how to communicate better and all of this. And it's, again, it was it was great to hear and feel that amazement that people that awe of like, wow, how much of a difference this makes. That moment is really what it's all about. The surprise and the the amazement. Luther, we have one more rapid fire question. I don't know how rapid fire these have been. <laughs> Final question. Is there a, a quote that you live by or a mantra or a quote that's really been resonating with you right now? There is one that I've I've used for a long time. It's kind of my quote, but it comes from somewhere else. It's it's we are what we practice and we're always practicing something. So to make changes, we need to practice something new and different. And it's inspired by the Aristotle quote that I heard a long time ago, you know, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. So back to sort of the how do you do transformation? The only way to really change and transform is to practice something new and different. A lot of times we don't realize that we are practicing. We're always practicing something. Our current habit, we just don't think of it as practice because we've been doing it for so long. And so if you take that into account, then you you start to realize, well, when someone asks you, are you what practices are you doing or what or or try this new practice and you think, wow, what effort it is, well, you're already doing it. It's just you're doing one that isn't working so well for you. <laughs> so try try practicing one that is. And yeah, sure, you're not going to be good at it at first because anytime you practice something new, you're you're going to make mistakes and, and it's not going to feel comfortable. You're going to be out of your comfort zone. But that's really the only way to start to make change and eventually to make change and transformation. Wonderful. A powerful way to close, Luther. Thank you so much for, for guiding us through uh, some of the, the early world of recognizing patterns, transformation, and helping people better take control of their leadership and how they move through the, the world. It's been a ton of fun to have you on the show. Well, thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it too. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.